0: you are listening to studying pixels a retro nostalgic podcast on game studies and video game culture i'm stefan heinrich simond i'm a game study scholar from germany
1: i'm dan hughes a japanese scholar from texas
0: and you can find us every sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcast do you have this weird feeling dan that even though You haven't been born in the 80s, (laughs) but you're still nostalgic for it.
1: Uh, I think living in the world that we do, I can't get away from that somehow. Yeah, I I had a friend in high school. He he used to say that it was vicarious nostalgia, nostalgia for a time you never actually went through.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that's actually pretty common that we idealize or romanticize a time past that we haven't experienced and maybe even... The times that we haven't experienced are more appealing from a nostalgic perspective than the ones that we have experienced.
1: I think that's probably true because we don't have the the lens of what was actually bad about the time to look back on. Because frankly, I'm, I'm excited for the boomerang to come into the 90s. We're kind of getting there with the pop punk resurgence, but I want crazy advertisements where big fisheye lenses... Close up of people, you know, teachers telling students, you can't do this. And it's about, I don't know, like a Gushers commercial or something. I want this back. I want (laughs) skateboarding. We talked about Tony Hawk recently. (laughs) I want all of this to come back. A time that I actually lived in. But I think people are reticent to move past the 80s.
0: Yeah, there's a you know TV advertisement where there's like a laser beam that's shooting out of the TV and just fries you into a skeleton, <laughs> and it's like
1: the new Nintendo console. <laughs> yeah, go back to that. I would be psyched about it. I'd buy anything Nintendo would put out if they had a skeleton in it.
0: Ah, <laughs> uh, but we got to talk about the '80s a little bit because we're going to review unusual findings, a game that just came out this week. Before we do that, I've got one brief shout-out to the podcast Ethics and Video Games. They are very much appreciated colleagues of ours. Dan, you and me, we've both been on their show, and they've been on Studying Pixels because we did kind of a crossover episode. Yeah, it was great. And now I did a follow-up with them on Madness in Video Games. I spoke to Andy and Shlomo about my PhD project, Madness in Video Games, So, if you're curious about that, then you can find them "Ethics and Video Games" podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. There's even a they do they do videos. They do like YouTube video things for
1: podcasts. They do, yeah. They've uh, breached the undiscovered country for us. So it was. (laughs) I will say it was fun to watch you talk about it. So if you haven't listened to it, give it a listen. It's a lot of fun.
0: And if you like this very show that is studying pixels now, (laughs) then you can help us. Make that happen, because we do need your support. It's very important to keep the show alive. And that's why we have Studying Pixels Plus. There, you can get all of our episodes entirely ad-free. You'll get a lovely sticker that says, I am studying pixels, and monthly plus episodes. We just mentioned that this month's plus episode elaborates on the history of the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater series. All of that for just $5 a month. If you're curious, then you can go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more.
2: I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me.
0: Today we're going to talk about Unusual Findings, a very recent video game, and its core theme, which is the 80s. Because indeed, the 80s and 80s nostalgia specifically, that's something that's just so prominent right now. We got the huge success of Stranger Things. We got synthwave music that's coming back. All kinds of like contemporary music is really inspired by the 80s. And we've got A lot of video games, of course, and video game aesthetics. There's
1: such a profound fascination with the 80s at the moment. It's truly impressive. I feel like the moment has been going on for quite a while, too. Because I think... A couple of years? Surely, yeah. Yeah. And I think that the general idea for nostalgia for these kinds of waves is that, at least I don't know if you've heard this, but it comes in 30-year cycles, and it usually lasts about maybe 5 or 10 years where you're, you're interested in this period. So I think about... Back to the Future, was set in the 80s, and they were obsessed with the 50s. And then into the 90s, that kind of moved weirdly back to the 20s, but then it had some 60s elements and things like this. But I feel like for the longest time, we've kind of surpassed and shot past the expected cycle of nostalgia, and we've been kind of stuck in the 80s for a really long time.
0: Yeah, there was a certain love for the 70s, I think, that was also part of the 90s, when you think of especially... Tarantino movies for example.
1: Yeah good point.
0: But yes I think by now we've reached pretty much the peak at least that's what it feels like to me of 80s nostalgia and the interesting thing about this is that of course this is most likely due to a generation that had its formative memories in the 80s and that is now at a time where it's in positions to have a big impact on cultural productions on artworks on films, on TV shows, and so on. I suppose that is one of the primary factors for why we're currently in the age of 80s nostalgia.
1: Yeah, I think you're right. And also, the kind of cool thing is that compared to the 70s or the 60s, the aesthetic of the 80s, you mentioned Synthwave and just the colors and all of the kind of weird, almost cyberpunk futurism (laughs) that existed in the 80s. I think that it appeals to people more than maybe how the 60s, 70s, even the 50s looked. So I think that it's just one of those aesthetics that lends itself to movies and particularly video games because a lot of video games have their birth in the 80s. And so it just feels like video games fit the niche of the 80s
0: really well. Video games, I think, have actually their origins in the 80s. That's not quite accurate because there have been video games in the 70s already, but they were, of course, much more limited in scope. They were not as popular, not as mainstream, and they were largely in arcades where you know the home consoles were not a thing at the time. So people are usually not as nostalgic for something like uh, pong yeah. <laughs> than they are for like you know the very early to late 80s video games that were just formative for the way in which the medium would develop.
1: There was the, the boom and the crash and then Nintendo came along and I think reinvigorated what video games were And so I think a lot of people when they think about video games still, People who aren't as engaged as you and I are, Stefan, with video games, I think their their minds take them back to the mid-80s or maybe even the early 90s, but it's just a particular aesthetic that lends itself to video game memory, and I think that's why we see a lot of games either set in that time or taking maybe 8 or 16-bit aesthetics or making the, the music fit that time a little bit more, and so it's just a, a good <laughs> Reese's Peanut Butter Cup mesh <laughs> of memory and form making these games work. And the interesting thing is here that these aesthetics, they are
0: nostalgic in the sense that they pick up on certain aspects of the 80s, but they are not identical to the aesthetics of the 80s. Because they basically, that's what I gathered from it. They take key aesthetic features, but they implement them in a technological framework that is contemporary, so they're actually much more high fidelity. The music productions, they are a lot more, you know, optimized, a lot more mixed, and a lot more thoroughly produced. The films, or if we take such an example like Stranger Things, they pick up on certain things like the Goonies and stuff like that from the 80s, but the special effects, for example, in Stranger Things are super impressive in a way that an 80s production could have not done it. So I feel like This 80s nostalgia in the medium is a projection upon the past as it never really was.
1: Yeah, I think that's perfect. It's an idealized version of it that it's taken all the elements that were there, distilled it, and then produced something that purports to be from that time, but is really an example of how far we've come since then. I think Stranger Things is the ultimate example. Yeah, it's just you could not make that show back in the 80s with what they had. It just wouldn't work. Surely, yes.
0: And that also applies to video games. And the game that we're going to talk about today that does exactly that is Unusual Findings, a title that was released just this week. We have received a review key, and that's why I've already finished it a couple of days ago. Unusual Findings is developed by Epic Llama. That is a small Argentinian indie studio. They are, like, really small, and they went to Kickstarter, to get funding for their game, and they raised almost 19,000 US dollars, which one could say on the one hand is quite a bit of money. I mean, getting 19,000 dollars for a project is really cool. On the other hand, if you look at the average funding that is required for video game development, 19,000 US dollars is not much money if you need to pay
1: salaries for people, if you need to pay for equipment, and so on. That's not much. Not at all. (laughs) So commendable that they finished it on that. I mean, I'm sure they supplemented with other things, but that's a pretty shoestring budget.
0: Yes, yes, surely. And especially because they published Unusual Findings now on pretty much any platform. I personally played it, played the PS4 version on PS5, I think, because they gave me a PS4 review key and I played it on PS5 and it's currently available for $20. But let's get into it. What is Unusual Findings? What is it about? It's about Three kids, of course. Someone in the 1980s. You got Vinny, Nick, and Tony. Great names. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) a classic, yeah. Yeah. And the game opens up where you play as Vinny all the time, by the way. You You have three characters, and they are described as playable characters, but actually you're only playing as Vinny, and the other two are always around, right? Okay. You're always walking around in a group. So it's not like Maniac Mansion, where you select different characters, but you only play as Vinny, and the others accompany him. And... It opens up with Vinny playing a video game, uh, Space Invaders inspired, I think, or or it might have been Super Mario inspired. I can't quite recall. I think it was Space Invaders, and then it glitches out. Then you see his bedroom, his children's bedroom, with a screen flickering, and his father comes in and yells at him. You know, why all of these video games and stuff, and you're grounded and so on. Hmm. And of course, then he escapes. He meets up with his friend Nick and then Tony to uh, <laughs> to unlock an adult tv channel. <laughs> right, so they're doing they're doing what, what kids will do. Yeah, they course. have some kind of like Tony is kind of the geek amongst them or I should say the nerd really because he's into all kinds of technology stuff and he got like a de-scrambler to get the <laughs> uh, pay tv premium uh, channels unlocked and instead though of an adult movie channel they accidentally receive a broadcast that shows an alien
3: Ah. An alien
0: ship that then crashes into the forest and they pull this The Last of Us thing where you see it on the screen, this kind of alien broadcast, and then suddenly you look out of the window and you see how the alien ship goes down into the nearby forest. Oh, cool. And then they, of course, they investigate, they find an alien robot, and then they have to basically make their way to stop an alien invasion, uncover a huge conspiracy, and ultimately save the world, of course. This is not a spoiler. This all happens in the first couple of minutes of the game now. <laughs> <laughs> From then it goes on, right?
1: So here's where we live now, right? Stefan, you played this game. I didn't play it. So your, your review is as much for me as it is for everyone else. But my reference poisoned brain has just... It, it's been like a pinball machine just lighting up with everything that you've said. So three boys going on an adventure... You mentioned the Goonies earlier. I mean, that definitely feels like that. Then there's tuning into a a TV station that you shouldn't be able to access. That reminds me of Videodrome, which is a horror movie from the 80s. And then the ship landing and these boys finding sort of an alien life form. I mean, that screams E.T. Totally. Yeah. So already in the setup, we've got a lot of different influence from the 80s and the late 70s here. Absolutely.
0: It draws on all of these themes. And I find one of the most impressive things about it, that it really captures this kind of vibe of the 80s. Because what we've drawn on now are several references, pop culture references, that Unusual Findings also draws from. Of course, Also Stranger Things. I mean the title is Unusual Findings. It could just it could well be Stranger Things the video game, but they already exist. (laughs) So they probably just said, "Eh, it should make unusual findings. (laughs) Could also have been dubious occurrences, for example. (laughs) I would play that game. (laughs) Totally, yeah. Maybe it's a sequel. Yeah. (laughs) But the, the nice thing that they nail is this kind of sense of a conspiratorial adventure that is contained within all of these narratives that you've just named. Like in E.T. is one of these things where there's this alien and where the protagonist whose name I completely forgot Elliot. has to hide the alien. Elliot mm. has to has to hide the alien from others and he will have to explain himself and so on. And that's kind of, it's all about this thing. Like this happens amongst us as teenagers, yeah, as young people. This is what matters to us and nobody else will understand. We're the only ones that have seen this kind of alien. Everyone else is like, yeah, there was this kind of thing, but oh, it's going to be this. Or an alien? Are you kidding me? Yeah, And you know, (laughs) then you have this kind of thing that at least everyone can relate to, I assume, of being a kid and being like, this is my world, this is what I care about, and it's completely different from the world of the grown-ups.
1: Yeah, and there's it's funny because it is conspiratorial because it's like you step into a secret world and most people dismiss you for having found it, but then there are some people who are coming to get you because you found this secret and you've kind of infringed on their world too.
0: Yes, exactly. And it just ticks all the boxes straight away. The guys hop on their bikes. Ah, the bikes. Got to be bikes. They've got the bikes and they've got exactly the bikes that the kids have in Stranger Things as well. (laughs) So (laughs) this oozes eighties out of every corner. And one part that really contributes to that and that I want to specifically emphasize up top as a big plus point is the music, because they've got some licensed titles and there's some original 80s songs, but it's only two or three throughout the entire game, I think. Pretty impressive. Yeah, for just a couple of licensed titles and then pretty wonderful and very well-produced original score composed by Thomas Ferrero. I looked up his name because I wanted to shout his name out here. I think this is probably perfectly fine. I've recorded a little bit of the track that plays in the background. So I just recorded a little bit of gameplay. This is like, you know how let's players, they can also put clips of gameplay on YouTube. We can play a little clip here of me playing Unusual Findings where the music is rather prominent. I'll just put it in the background here. And it is this kind of pumping synth wave style music that as soon as it sets in, you immediately think, ah, oh, that's that's the 80s. Even though I haven't lived back then, but that's the 80s. Uh,
1: yeah. Do you think that that works well for video games because synth was kind of in the same family as the 8-bit music that we really love in video games?
0: Totally. It's very iconic in the assemblage of various different soundscapes that we know from video games Yeah, that have been created on the first Nintendo and then the Super Nintendo. There's so many people who used still like a Game Boy to make music chiptune music yeah chiptune exactly so i think this kind of auditive aesthetic of video games is so influential and pervades so deeply into synthwave that uh, it is a perfect fit i think yeah
1: well kudos thomas ferrero
0: yes exactly and the same applies for the visuals the visuals are also pretty impressive i must say they are of course Very reminiscent of Maniac Mansion. I think this is probably... Maniac Mansion is probably the strongest influence where you have these, you know, slightly elongated characters and they're kind of a little bit stiff way to move around. At the same time, though, it is of a sufficient production quality, as we mentioned earlier, that it doesn't seem clunky or weird. You know, it has just this typical Maniac Mansion stuff. Maybe in between... Somewhere between Maniac Mansion and the Day of the Tentacle uh, that's the kind of aesthetic that you can imagine.
1: I think it's interesting that certain games like Maniac Mansion, I feel like the aesthetic came out of limitation. And then it's, it's really cool to see people recreate that, but have it not feel clunky or out of place. And just as if it had just been made the exact same way. So it sounds like it's a pretty one-to-one kind of feel for this old kind of, video game aesthetic that we've been talking about.
0: Yeah, with certain things, this kind of abstract 8-bit, 16-bit, whatever it is, I don't know, this 80s nostalgia aesthetic, I'm going to call it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. This is really something that holds up very well because of the implementation of icons instead of uh, symbols or instead of indexes. Uh, What I mean by that is, when I say icon then i mean the things that you see on screen they are to some degree related to what an actual object would look like in a photorealistic aesthetic but it doesn't try to 100% replicate it because a face obviously if you want to do a photorealistic face then you know you can look to games like what you see coming out of the studio of Quantic Dream for example they put a lot of effort into that or Naughty Dog you know they're doing a lot of uh, putting a lot of effort into that but if you don't have that kind of budget or if you want to go into a different aesthetic direction, then look at the style of an emoticon, and like a smiley. It's so abstract. At the same time, it evokes so much emotion because what you can't see, your mind is basically filling in for. And this is how the aesthetics of unusual findings works as well. You're In retrospect, I think about the game and it probably looks a lot better in my mind than it looks on the screen because my brain filled out all of these gaps.
1: That's so cool how that what you just described makes me think of the stories from the 80s that we that we brought up too that it's sort of taking inspiration from because there's something really interesting going on with how the actual narrative of those stories is that there's something that maybe the kids think is happening and they're putting a lot of themselves into it to figure out what's going on. And then also when we look back on those movies, we have those rose-tinted goggles on and we think, oh, it was it was much more this in my memory than it was actually on film. So it's interesting that even in the aesthetics of the game, where you're kind of gesturing towards what this icon represents, you're filling in the blanks and telling the story as much as the developers are.
0: Exactly. And 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 that means that sometimes it can be Uh, more expressive, or it can even feel more authentic to have a more abstract face rather than one that attempts to be completely realistic. Where, you know how when you play one of these older adventure games, characters talk, and their mouth movement is just like basically a small loop that plays over and over and is completely (laughs) not befitting for the actual utterances? That's exactly the case here. And it's perfectly fine. It, It doesn't bother me at all. It's part of the genre. It's part of the aesthetics. And... It doesn't seem weird at all, you know?
1: <laughs> well, I think it's it's fun because the way that you're describing this, it, there's a certain feeling, I don't know if you've felt this with other games, but the game is almost like a story that you're hearing secondhand, and this is how they've recreated it. And so you kind of fill in the gaps because the storyteller is leaving the gaps up to your interpretation. So they could, you know, obviously a, you mentioned Naughty Dog, they're very expressive it's very clear what they're looking to do maybe you can interpret certain themes and meanings of a game like uncharted but for the most part you know how nathan drake feels whereas in a game like unusual findings it sounds like you could go into a scene and say oh i wonder what's actually happening here i think i think probably this because this is what i imagine is happening but i don't know if that's what they intended
0: yeah and that's the reason why this kind of aesthetics holds up so well it might be the reason for why when we think of you know these this pixel art style pixel art that holds up so well because it is abstract to a degree we also know that games like you know super mario world i know that's from the 90s but super mario world that game looks amazing nowadays you don't you don't need to change anything and it looks fantastic whereas if you take a game like i don't know let's say Final Fantasy VII, hypothetically. course. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: I'll, I'm willing to go with you on this. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, uh, I, I'm
0: sure there's going to come a time when we look nostalgically back upon that and there's going to be, you know, games that play into that kind of aesthetic again, but where you have this strive for photorealism, the gap between what you experience and what it is actually gets bigger rather than smaller.
1: Yeah, you're you're teetering on the edge of the uncanny valley <laughs> at that point. <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> Of course, it is also part of this quintessential 80s experience to integrate lots of references and some experiences that you would just organically find in the 80s. For example, they make a big thing out of it in Unusual Findings that when a cartridge doesn't work, then you have to blow into it to blow out the dust. There's actually a puzzle I couldn't for the life of me progress and ultimately you have to plug in uh, plug into a, into a socket and all you have to do is just hit the socket, and then put the talk to button, the talk to interaction verb. I'm going to come to that in a second. And what he does then is he blows into it, and it's like dust (laughs) flying out. And he's like,
1: okay, now it works. Uh, Who was the first kid who, I mean, I'm sure there were people who were familiar with computer chips and things, but can you imagine, that seems like a playground rumor that you wouldn't believe until you did it. Just blow in the cartridge until it works. <laughs> Although I'm actually not sure whether it's a
0: good idea. I've heard also, and that's also addressed in the game, that it can also damage the circuits. And that's why you shouldn't blow into the cartridge. Yeah.
1: So damned if you do, damned if you don't, I'm afraid.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> but such things, you know, you play an NES game, you blow into the cartridge to, to get it to work again. Or you go to like, I don't know, Video Buster, what it's called in the, in the game.
2: Uh, <laughs> Video where you, Buster.
0: Excellent. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they, they always have these inspired names by, by real things. And you ha- want to lend a videotape. And then, you know, you basically go through the sections. And the characters talk about everything, every single film that's laying around there and every little genre and reminisce. Or you have to wait your turn on the phone because there's only one landline. I remember this, actually, <laughs> from my youth, even, where there's only a landline and you have to wait. All of these things are part of the 80s experience and they are all very much encapsulated in unusual findings.
1: That's the kind of thing that I think makes a uh, an 80s property like this work is when it's not necessarily... Because I think Stranger Things is is a good show, but I think sometimes it leans way too heavily into the, hey, remember this, or hey, here's a reference. And I think that these work better for me when it's those minute things or the little things that you might have encountered if you lived through the 80s that make it more real like talking to your friends at a video store or blowing into a cartridge like those are things that we we hear about all the time but i think they're if you're not drawing as much attention to it it's just part of how you lived <laughs> at that time and so it makes it a little more engaging and and real i wish i could give that point to unusual findings
0: because i think that's exactly where it falters oh really okay because yes it does exactly the same thing that you just described. It's uh, basically throws it into your face all the time. Every second dialogue thing all the time it's like, "Hey, remember this and so on, you know." And then you've got the uh, like every single car that you see, you can you can look at it and uh, they will talk about the car and be like, "Oh, that's a DeLorean, that's from listen, you know." <laughs> and it's basically like you're going through an 80s museum and that's fine but you have to really enjoy this kind of let's sit back and reminisce about all kinds of things. Because if you don't, then this is just an endless firework of references where it's like, <laughs> oh, here, there's a, there's a movie poster. This is Galaxy Wars. This is, you know, obviously Star Wars. Here's uh, from a band, John Bovi and so John on. John Bovi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just, it goes on and on and on. So it's like constantly wherever you go, There is some kind of elaborate dialogue on how this has been so cool and so on, which it just feels a little bit weird, I must say. The reason why it feels weird to me is that the kids, they are in the 80s. Yeah. And for them, it's not really a moment of nostalgia, but for them, it's kind of the present. Yeah, It's just what it is. It's like how when you live through it, you wouldn't be nostalgic for having to wait your turn on the phone. That's only in hindsight when you think like, oh, the world was so much simpler and better back then. I think that's why it's a little bit too much for me, I must say. These constant 80s. Here, look, it's the 80s.
1: It's so nostalgic. Oh, look, don't you remember this? You know, it's a little bit too much. It's a fine line that these things walk because there's a level of thematic resonance. Certain references can mean, right? So sometimes references in these things are just, they're references for references' sake. But then other times you have, like, I'm thinking of Stranger Things. There's a moment in Stranger Things in the first season when one of the boys has a poster of John Carpenter's The Thing on his wall. And on the one hand, you're like, oh, thematically, that's smart, because it's The Thing from another world. There's something that's going to invade this boy's world, and, and we're going to be kind of scared. But then your reality brain kicks in, and you go... The Thing was a major flop when it came out. A boy would not have a poster of The Thing in his room. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you go, that's just, it kind of sticks out to you as, remember The Thing? Remember this? Remember it? <laughs> it kind of mm, drives you crazy. Yep. And you have to imagine that Unusual Findings
0: goes a step further than Stranger Things, because in Unusual Findings, you look at the poster and then it's like, ah, that's The Thing, that's the movie that came, that recently came out. It's about this and this and this. It was kind of interesting, but also a bit of a letdown with the special effects. <laughs> I personally like the, you know, and then it goes on and, and it's like I like the original thing that it was inspired by from the nineteen fifties more. And uh, yeah. this is the kind of uh, the monologue slash dialogue that you can expect in unusual findings that no child in the eighties had. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's like oh come on, uh, how's the there's a, the, the child actually Vinny, the protagonist that you're playing. He is really characterized as a kind of. Um, he himself is constantly very nostalgic for things, for movies. He's a movie buff and he loves movies between the 1920s and the 1960s, I'm going to say, or 1950s. So it embodies like a double kind of throwback. Yeah. It has this throwback into the 80s and then the 80s throwback into the 1920s to 1950s cinematography.
1: So someone who's nostalgic in a nostalgic property, that's kind of interesting. Yeah
0: basically what i'm trying to say here is that unusual findings is only enjoyable when you really enjoy nostalgia and <laughs> you're like oh i just want to you know i just want to experience that if you're kind of annoyed by this constant 80s romanticization then you have to run from unusual findings <laughs>
1: <laughs> but i guess on the flip side if you're looking for more 80s then it sounds like it's right up your alley
0: yes yes if you're looking for more 80s then you get a sufficiently interesting set of characters they, of course, are all stereotypes. I mentioned Vinny, the kind of hero protagonist, who's also at the same time quite a bit geeky. There's Nick, has this kind of, you know, Rambo uh, headband on. And he's kind of the more hot-headed guy. He loves cars and so on. He's the only one who can properly talk to girls and, and that kind of thing. And then there's Tony. Tony, who is the nerd with the glasses and so on, who all got all kinds of niche knowledge of things. And... What they do pretty well is bringing this friend group into banter, because that's really what friends of that age, let's say, I don't know how old they are, let's say 15 maybe, 14, 15. So just, just imagine the Stranger Things cast.
1: Yeah, <laughs>
0: <laughs> The banter is what brings these characters to life, and they do that pretty well. They even have lots of profanities in the game, probably because they don't have a publisher that would interfere and that would say, you can't say that. At the same time, though, I must say, while I enjoyed the banter, because of the convincing writing and voice acting, it also is rather slowed down. Because if I'm not mistaken here, then in unusual findings, there can only ever be played one voice track at once. Oh, Okay. Just like in old adventure games, you know, where you have, where just one person says their piece and then there's a short gap and then the next person says their piece and then it goes back and forth. And it just is a very slow dynamic. If we would do that in a podcast, then people would think, why are they so stale?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So maybe a case of the borrowed aesthetic from something not working because we've moved past that.
0: We move past that, and we we would expect more more dynamic in a kind of interaction since we've seen how characters can organically interact with one another in many video games since it might work or it does work when it's when you're only reading, but considering that everything is voiced, which is cool in itself, there needs to be a little bit more of an or- actual organic conversational flow. I think that would have hugely improve the quality of the game overall, because it's really 90% talking.
1: That feels to me an example of kind of the opposite of what we were talking about with properties like this that distill everything down and kind of improve on it, where sometimes you, you borrow something that you remember as being, you know, constitutive of the game, and then it just doesn't work anymore, because, well, as you said, we have games where people are talking over each other, and there's multiple tracks, and it just kind of feels like a slog almost.
0: Yeah, and of course, it only emphasizes one more point in which Unusual Findings, unfortunately, falters. Probably, in my mind, the biggest one in which it falters is that there is just too little character development in the game. Because the group in itself is interesting. The characters, while stereotypical, they fit perfectly into this 80s setting. But I always associate eighties narratives, and you've mentioned them—the Goonies, ET, even the ones that are just Stranger Things—that are callbacks to the eighties. They, they are often coming of age stories. Back to the Future, also, like you know, it's it's all about growing up. It's all about challenging oneself, and really centrally themed around coming of age. And everything was in place in unusual findings. There's the alien encounter. There's the conspiracy. All of these things that could eventually just be basically MacGuffins for the characters to be confronted with challenges that makes them grow. Unfortunately, I find that they don't really or they don't grow enough. There's no noticeable character development throughout 95% of the game. And that I found quite a bit sad to see, because I think there was so much potential there that could have been realized. I would have rather preferred them to focus a little bit more on character development and a little bit less on these very explicit 80s references, because that overall would have made it to me more of a quintessentially 80s nostalgia narrative, because it includes this kind of character development.
1: Is it a case where... The setup of the characters where you you mentioned, you know, there's the nerd, there's the kind of ladies man, there's the guy who's interested in film. They live within that setup too much and they just don't move past it.
0: Yes, exactly. They don't move past it and they've got their their moments and their highlights, of course, but there would have just been so much there. Of course, the entire game also is narrated as taking place in one night. So I get it if it's all very condensed. But on the other hand, you can still make use of, you know, certain impulses of character development within that. I think it's difficult. It's tough to get that right in the context of uh, storytelling, but that's the challenge. And I think, unfortunately, that's a bar that they missed with unusual findings. Now, let's talk about the adventure structure and the Maniac Mansion-inspired puzzling. But before we do that, we're going to take a brief break and we'll be right back. And we are back with our review on unusual findings and our inquiry into 80s nostalgia. One thing that we haven't spoken about yet is the mechanics. (laughs) The game. (laughs) Yes, the actual game. Because as it turns out, it is really a game and not a TV show, which crucially differentiates it (laughs) from Stranger Things. Although there is also a Stranger Things video game, but this is not it. (laughs) It's a different game. (laughs) It's a point-and-click adventure, and it is very classical In that sense, because it operates on the basis of interaction verbs. This is a throwback to the time of the early LucasArts adventures, where you can do pretty much anything with any object in the environment. In the case of unusual findings, it's simplified a bit. You can choose to look, grab, or talk to pretty much anything. So you have like a little crosshair, and then you aim it at something, and then you press X, and then it pops up, look at, talk to, or grab. And you can do all kinds of silly things with it. That's part of the fun, where you can say, talk to tree, for example. And then Vinny walks up to the tree and is like, I'd rather not talk to vegetation. And then,
3: (laughs) you know, you move on
0: with your life. (laughs) That's the kind of fun that you have with these point-and-click adventure games. It's really an essential part of these games that you click on anything and try out anything. It might be that my personal perception of it being a little bit too intense with its 80s nostalgia shoving it into your face is also due to the fact that I look at everything. I look at every object. If there's a poster in in a room on the wall, I will not just walk past it. I will click on it and I'll be like, look at poster. Talk to <laughs> poster. Grab poster. It's like, could you not steal my stuff? It's like,
1: okay, I'll leave it where it is then. <laughs> so the 80s nostalgia, sort of, that you're drowning in, it may be a result of you obsessive-compulsively walking around (laughs) and
0: trying everything out. (laughs) Yes, I think I still got that in me from these original games because that's often the only way to
1: find the solution uh, to a puzzle. That's a very fair point because you in point and click adventure games you do have to try literally everything. Things that you you wouldn't even imagine are possible. So, all right, I'm going to I'm going to take back my critique of you in that case <laughs> because that is necessary for those games.
0: Yeah, I must say that most of the puzzles that you encounter, they are quite logical. And usually you get the crucial cues For puzzle solving in conversation, because you can, of course, also talk to absolutely everyone in that game. With every character, you can have a more or less uh, elaborate conversation. And you can ask them, like, did you see anything suspicious tonight? How are you doing? What are you doing here? And so you've got like these several prompts. And usually either you get crucial hints for puzzles, or they are going to just directly ask something of you, like, can you help me with this or something? There's a guy who's completely, he's in front of his house and he's trapped in Christmas lights, right? They are, sure. <laughs> as as, as you happens. do, yeah. I think it's like uh, somewhere around Christmas time, actually, in the game. And uh, you walk up to him and then you can speak to him, and it turns out that uh, he needs help. <laughs> He needs an extension cord for the Christmas lights. And then you talk to him further, and then the more you go into the conversation, you find out that he's actually a video game developer for a video game that another character at the other end of the map, a different, completely different character, is currently playing that game and is stuck at a point. So you can get a tip from that character to then help the other character out and progress. That's pretty fun. That's, that's pretty fun. Yeah. These, these puzzles are usually pretty good i must say i was always worried because <laughs> i played this game before it came out and that means you can't look anything up if you are stuck you are stuck because nobody else is playing that game except for a couple of journalists and you can't reach you know <laughs> i could have <laughs> technically reached out to the developers and be like hey i can't progress here but luckily i didn't have too much trouble there were some times where i just started to try out everything, with everything. But that's also just part of any kind of nostalgic uh, point-and-click adventure, yeah.
1: Yeah, there's always the, I don't know what to do. Now, the real the real question that I have to ask, is there ever a point in the game, and I think I know the answer, but is there a point in the game where if you didn't do something early, you cannot progress? Or No. Is it pretty forgiving? No, there isn't. Okay.
0: Uh, it's pretty forgiving in that sense because you always have a certain environments in which you navigate. For example, the first one is your hometown. And you've got like a world map overview where you can click on different areas. Then you go there and it's like this 2D thing where you walk around, you can speak to characters, you can collect all kinds of objects and so on. And then once you think you're done in that section, you go on to a different one. You go on to, I don't know, a junkyard that's nearby and so on. But you can always freely navigate in between these areas. And in order to leave the area, you need to complete basically the main part of the puzzles. There are also some optional puzzles that you don't need to complete, but you can never navigate yourself into a complete corner.
1: Because I think of um, even even games that weren't strictly point and click like the Ultima games, there were always there was always a point where if you didn't do one thing in the first screen, you couldn't finish the game) <laughs>
0: Oh, I remember that when I played Maniac Mansion back in the day, that game was also super merciless because characters would die and uh, you only had so many, so many chances and you couldn't actually navigate yourself into a corner where you just can't continue playing that game.
1: It reminds me of another game we talked about, The Quarry and those, you know, Until Dawn, where games have become more forgiving since Maniac Mansion, where, yeah, people can, can still die. It just won't be a perfect run through the game.
0: These newer kind of uh, cinematographic adventures, they are completely different in the degree of puzzling that they require, because something like the Quarry and the the Supermassive games, I think, right? Supermassive is the name of the studio. They are... They are so forgiving and so smoothly integrated into the narrative, whereas in this one, in Unusual Findings, it can get pretty absurd and pretty abstract as well. You also, I found that they have a certain fascination for chemistry that doesn't seem to me like something that organically integrates into the 80s. I can only assume (laughs) it's just a fable of the developer studio, where you often have to mix certain ingredients in order to create some kind of reacting liquid. Or as a very simple example, you have to to know for uh, two or three points in the game, things like how do you create smelling salt to wake someone up? Or how do you create a lemon battery? Like, (laughs) they talk about it in the game and they give you these small cues. But ultimately, it's up to you to kind of think back to your childhood, where you have hopefully learned that in school. When you know that where you find a lemon and a copper spoon and these kind of things, you know, where you then realize, like, oh, wait, I can make a battery out of this.
1: I think that I would have, <laughs> I would not have gotten past that, I think.
0: Yeah. I must also say, especially with the smelling salt. Yeah. I, I don't know the ingredients of a smelling salt, but you find like.
1: <laughs> Number one, <two> salt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> You find two kind of chemicals in this area, and then at a certain point, I was stuck, so I just started to try combining everything with everything and as it happens, you can click on the two combine this uh, chemical with this one, and then it's like, oh, now it's now we've got this, what is this? Blah, blah, blah it's smelling salt, you can wake someone up with it. That's the kind of way how I found the solution
1: that well, in a way, I think that even if even if there's no predilection with chemistry in the eighties, that is such a point and click adventure thing where it's like, oh. Suddenly, you've developed this. I guess it'll be useful later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. And actually,
0: I had to brute force one puzzle. There was one puzzle that I could not, for the life of me, figure out how to solve. And it's relatively, at the, it's pretty late in the game. It's like, in the, like three quarters in. And I was, you have this thing where you are in an arcade, of course. You know, several times in this game, you hang around in an arcade. And you have to beat a group of kids from a neighboring village, they have their kind of crew and they're playing Street Puncher. (laughs) (laughs) They're playing Street Puncher and they're like super good at the game and you have to figure out to beat them in order to get arcade tickets so that you can then get a different tool and progress in the game. Yeah. And I couldn't figure out how to do it because the thing is that you don't actually get to play the game, but you do get to choose the character. So there are like 10 characters and over time I found out you need to win three matches in a row and I found out so whether you win or not depends on the character combinations that sure. are being that are being chosen but I could not find any kind of hint as to which character is supposed to win against whom absolutely no way to do it so what I ultimately did in my desperation and because there are no walkthroughs online I <laughs> I went down and I I noted down all of the possible character combinations and I tried them over and over and over again until I found the one that works. And then I moved on and did that for the next character until I finally cracked it with no logic or reason, just simply brute forcing it by trying it again and again.
1: Like like breaking into a padlock or something. Well, I wonder, because I, I think neither of us are fighting game people, really. So I wonder if did the characters match characters from Street Fighter? Was there like a Chun-Li type character?
0: Yes, some yes. But there's also, there, there's a turtle, a ninja, ninja turtle. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> there's also the the mad scientist from Maniac Mansion. Okay. Uh, he's also in there. All kinds of mixed 80s characters.
1: Because I was going to say, if it was like, uh maybe it, was a little bit meta and it actually asked that you have some knowledge of who the best, like the the roster of the Street Fighter gang, who would beat who, right? So maybe there's like, if there's parallel characters, then you would kind of know, oh, this is going to beat this. But if it's just a hodgepodge of 80s characters, yeah, I think, how do you do it other than brute forcing it? <laughs> it's,
0: I think it's pretty impossible. I I couldn't find any kind of indication. If you there uh, are playing the game and if you find any kind of logic on how to do this without brute forcing... Uh, then please let me know. I just went through by <laughs> taking notes on everything and had a little bit of a of an obsessive time there, just you know, going through always character one against character two. No, it doesn't work. Character one <laughs> against character three. Yeah, that's basically how I rolled. Although I will
1: I will say, right, as as funny as it is, that does make me think of old point and click games where you just kind of yeah. You sit there with a notebook and you say, well this didn't work, so I'm going to try this now. Yeah. And you think
0: Ultimately, there is a solution, and if I just try enough times, uh, systematically... If I try everything. If I try everything, <laughs> yeah. if I'm patient enough, then I will. it will work. And it did work. At the same time, though, that sounds like the game is super obtuse now, which it isn't really. It, it does have its head scratches, which any kind of good point-and-click can legitimately have, especially one that's so distinctly referring to the 80s. And it also has some comfort functions. For example... In these original titles, such as Maniac Mansion, or I remember the early Day of the Tentacle, the original release of Day of the Tentacle, it was partially absolutely annoying how much pixel hunting you had to do, because you oh, had to yeah. like click on every single thing because you couldn't discern, especially because of this low-res graphics, which objects are relevant. And they changed that here. They prevented that by you holding a button you basically have an object highlighter so you can immediately see all the interactable objects on screen. Oh, that's
1: nice. Yeah.
0: So you won't have to click around all the time. Also, I must say, and this is another positive point here, there is actually quite a lot of game. <laughs> In the beginning, I mentioned that these nineteen thousand US dollars that they made for the production of this game, that is not a, not a huge budget. And of course, they had a very distinct art style that allowed them to cut quite some corners and stuff. But ultimately, my first playthrough of unusual findings it took twelve hours. That is quite a lot for a point and click. I'm sure that if I would have solved every puzzle immediately, or if I would have known how to get past that street puncher uh, puzzle, then <laughs> maybe it would have been ten hours. Yeah. But still, it, it, it's quite a. It's not a super short game. It's not something that you just breeze through
1: in an evening. That's pretty impressive, and and it sounds like it kept your attention for. The entire time, too, it wasn't like a, a drag at any point other than maybe the street puncher situation,:
0: yes, especially because I really tried and just relish in this kind of '80s nostalgia. yeah, of course, I think you can probably you could speed run this game very quickly, probably in half an hour or something, if you just go straight through, but that's not what the game is about. The game is about lingering around in these environments, of course, when I enter such a like a, an arcade an 80s arcade, then I'm going to click on every machine and I'm going to look at it and I'm going to hear the commentary of the group and how they tease each other a little bit about it. So yeah, totally. And of course, what it also features, and that's something that I can only comment on a little bit, there are quite some dialogue choices in the game. I want to say my estimate would be roughly around like 10 times throughout these uh, this entire game. It happened that a character asked me something and I had two options to respond. And apparently... The answers to these questions, they change the course of the story. That's at least what, what they say. Now, I don't know to which degree it actually impacts the story. Most of these things, they felt to me completely trivial. Relatively small things like basically how to handle a certain like you know, daily challenges, kind of being a kid, really. Nothing all too major. I can imagine, because for me, the ending, it came rather abruptly, went on and and escalated and escalated in its weirdly stale point and click thing, you know, where nothing is really taken all too seriously at any point. And then suddenly it hits kind of the ending. And to me, it felt perfectly organic and fine the way I played it. I'm not sure how far I can stretch things if I deliberately pick the, the other option for every single dialogue choice, but it does have some replay value in that sense.
1: I wonder, it would be interesting to see if it's actually a different outcome or if it's one of those things where there's a slight change in how you get to the outcome, you know, like how old games used to say, you know, oh, you you decided to do this and it just so happened that that caused the same outcome in some funny way, ah. right? <laughs> yeah.
0: I think most likely it is... Probably going to end in the same way, but with some gradation of difference. Maybe
1: dialogue differences. Dialogue
0: differences. Maybe something doesn't happen quite as drastically as it happened. I know also I mentioned that there are some optional puzzles. There's some puzzles that you can skip. I remember that I had a certain sequence where I wanted to solve something. I thought I needed some other kind of thing, uh, more information to solve it. So I moved on and suddenly it was gone. And then I was like, okay, <laughs> now it's gone. And so you can technically go back and, and get these optional puzzles to probably get some kind of additional ending unlocked. I didn't do that. It did also not sufficiently motivate me to, to go through all of that again, just to get these optional puzzles. Last point is that, as is to be expected, for any kind of game that is in a pre-release state, I discovered quite some bugs, and I do hope that they're going to be fixed. A bug that I found is that there's quite some audio muffling going on. So the audio levels, even though the actors do generally do a good job, they are a little bit inconsistent. Sometimes the volume would go weirdly low, and I'll be like, oh, someone forgot to... you know. I know a little bit about audio mixing. It's like someone forgot to normalize that (laughs) segment of audio or something. (laughs) I also encountered a conversation where there were some audio tracks that were just entirely missing. Like, you could still read what the character says, but the audio track would just not trigger. And I found incidents where I mentioned there's an object marker, so you can hold a button and it displays all the objects on screen. Now, that object marker indicates objects even if they are not there anymore, if I have picked them up already. Oh, interesting. So yeah, the, the, there are actually a couple of interesting experiences that normally people don't make when they when they play a game only after it has come out. For example, the credits were missing. Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I didn't mention that. or didn't intend to mention that as a part of the review because it's not a minus point. It's not a negative point. Yeah. But by the time I played the game, the credits were not yet in. There was only test text. Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it was like credits testo. <laughs> at the end. Yeah. And then it just had some had some gibberish written there. But that's not a negative point because it's perfectly fine. That was, I think, roughly two weeks before the game's supposed to come out. So I assume that they just
1: simply patched the the credits in at a later point. You know what would be funny is this is kind of a niche 80s nostalgia thing, but do you know the story of Japanese developers in the eighties? In the credits, they would put like the office nickname of the person instead of their actual name. <laughs> So you would, yes. It would be like uh, you know, uh, someone like like lousy lousy Kaz or something like that. It would just be something like, just who who made this game? Oh, it was uh, it was Bipper or something.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it is definitely an interesting glimpse behind the curtain. I must say
1: that's kind of cool. Yeah,
0: Being like oh, okay, the uh, credits are not in yet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this game just appeared. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yes, it, but but that's fine. It's also actually I assume that most people know this that it's perfectly common that games are basically being sent as, for, for review purposes to journalists. And then only at a later point, there's actually some kind of you know 1.0 patch that comes in and that delivers some additional things, fixes some bugs. So it might be that these bugs that I've mentioned, that they are fixed by now. And I'm 100% certain that the credits have been added yeah, <laughs> into the game I would think so. <laughs> before its actual release. So I'm not worried about that at all. I would say... Unusual Findings. I found it very well worth playing. I gave kind of like a mixed picture about it now, and I think that's pretty much my impression of it. It is, I think, not so much about progressing, going through, and solving puzzles. That as well, and it does a pretty good job at that. But of course, it all revolves around nostalgia, memories, relishing in the 80s, it is a little bit too pushy about that, and I wish that it would have spent more time and effort for character development. But it is also quite polished and a well done game, especially for such a small studio working on a relatively small budget. So if you are out there and you say, 80s nostalgia, sign me up for it. You know, I'd gladly spend a weekend puzzling my way through unusual findings, then please feel free to go ahead. But you do need to bring some patience for this kind of genre-typical slow pacing of yeah, an 80s adventure game, really.
1: Well, I think you've sold me on it because I think I, I love a good Nostalgia Fest and I love a good throwback game. So it sounds like it kind of nails both of those. We talked in our last episode that i you know, I've been playing games like Infernax, which feel very similar in the sense of it's a throwback kind of game where it's taking the current comforts of video games and kind of applying them onto old style. So I think it might be next on my list. It sounds like it's a pretty fun time.
0: Yeah, especially because it's chill. I just remembered that. It's a chill game, considering the in comparison to something like Stranger Things... Stranger Things is actually a pretty stressful show. Yes, very much. Um, th- they have this they have this obsession where every single edit that they make, it's always like, a boom, you know, someone's slapping a book in a box or something. Someone's hitting the <laughs> coffee mug on the table. There's always, always this kind of punchy editing. And in comparison to the kind of stress and uh, drama of Stranger Things, Unusual Findings is more like, hey, let's chill, let's lean back, and let's just pretend it's the 80s for a couple of hours. That sounds pretty good. Well, thank you so very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed our review impressions of Unusual Findings and our discussions of 80s nostalgia as such. Please feel free to add your thoughts and questions on studyingpixels.com contact. If you want to help make the show happen, then go to studyingpixels.com and we will talk again next
2: week.